what I'd like to try and do this year is at events like this, we hear a lot of strategies, a lot of theory, a lot of tips, a lot of ideas. But I wanted to try and uh, show to you what it's like actually implementing and doing them um, from people who are in roles similar to yourselves. So I can stand here and, and hand on heart say, we use HubSpot, we use Vidyard, we do GDD, we do video marketing, we do inbound marketing. And that's enabled us to grow as an agency. And we've had over 100% revenue growth for over seven years in a row. But I think that's kind of expected in our industry. We're a marketing agency. We should be good at this stuff. So I've picked three uh, clients of ours, people who do these things and have done these things from different industries, from different backgrounds, and from different stages of their growth to share their experiences, not all the good things, but also the challenges, the hesitations, what went wrong, what you guys can learn from doing that as well. So the first of those I'd like to invite to stage in a moment is Jude. Uh, Jude is the marketing director from Newcastle University. Um, Conversation in a sec, Jude. Um, the couple of things that struck me when I met Jude just over a year ago is her enthusiasm and kind of love of everything digital. The second was the, the sort of scale of the challenge she had on ha at hand. Bringing HubSpot and inbound marketing into a very large and complex organization is a big undertaking. So those are the things that struck me and the reasons why I thought it would be good to have a chat with you today. Can I just try this first? Yeah, yeah, yeah do that. It, <laughs> it does yeah. work. Cool. Would you like to take a seat? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Can I just say before I start, this is completely freaky when you're talking about something where you know higher education is not my thing. Uh, until two years ago, it wasn't my thing. I actually came from SAS last, but I've worked in all kinds of industries. So there are tons of people in this room that know rather more about higher education marketing than I do. There are several people that know absolutely everything about Newcastle University, and certainly more than I do. And then there's a whole load of you guys that know everything more about inbound than I do. So I'll do my best. <laughs> no, thanks, Jude. Thank you being a bit modest there, but okay. Um, so I guess that when, I, when we started working together, the first thing that struck me was the size and scale of a university, not just from a student perspective, but also as a commercial entity. Just to set a bit of a context for the crowd, we just share a bit of the size and scale of, a Newcastle, uh, of Newcastle University, but also what that marketing function looks like as well. Yeah. So um, it's, I think quite often people think of universities as third sector organisations. I did a speaking gig lately where I was introduced as representing the third sector. And the fact of the matter is that uh, the university, uh, Newcastle University, turns over north of half a billion pounds, somewhere between 500 and 600 million pounds uh, a year. If it was uh, a commercial organization, it would be comfortably inside the FTSE 250, so it's pretty big. Um, we have got uh, 27,000 students, 80% of which, uh, of whom come from outside of the, uh, the region. And so uh, we have an economic impact to uh, Newcastle itself and the region of about 1.1 billion. We create directly an extra 1,000 jobs uh, around the city. We've got 6,500 employees. So we're, we're pretty big and important and in a region where things have been pretty tough, we're pretty important. So um, just in terms of marketing, I think the thing that's really changed uh, about universities is that, um, and particularly at universities like Newcastle, is that uh, until fairly recently, uh, we didn't really have to compete at all. Uh, you know, uh, students came from local authorities with grants attached to them, magically out of the sky. 
uh, very good universities like Newcastle uh, were selective rather than what we call recruiting. Uh, and that's now not the case, not for anybody really. Um, and research grants also uh, came much more easily uh, than they do do now. So we have to work really hard. And that obviously has a huge implication on the importance of marketing uh, with a capital M. No, for sure. I guess um, a lot of us would have understood the scale, uh, scale of a uni from like a student perspective. But when you first told me the revenue that the university turned over, I was, I was staggered. I didn't think it'd be anywhere near in that region. So... Yeah. Um, that really helped me understood the sort of size and, and yeah. scale of the challenge uh, uh, at hand. You know, and something else I should have said was that actually um, our revenue splits almost exactly down the middle. About 250 million comes from student fees. That's undergraduate, home and international, and uh, postgraduate, home and international. And then the other 250 million mainly comes from uh, revenue, which is it, either research grants or research collaborations with private industry. Uh, and so on and so forth. So we've got two very different kinds of marketing going on there. One is about high volume demand driven marketing uh, on the student side and uh, on the research side, it's much more about um, relationship and uh, more enterprise style marketing. So we've got everything going on. Oh, for sure, it's, uh, <laughs> All it's the never time. a quiet day. <laughs> um, so I guess going back to the start, you had to convince uh, the board that you needed not only a change in, in marketing philosophy, but also a change in technology. And both of those were quite significant changes, obviously bringing in HubSpot to an organization that you've just described, and also adding on to the stuff you're doing, the great things you're doing in marketing and layering on inbound marketing on top of those things. How did you go about convincing people that change needed to happen and overcome their initial sort of queries and hesitations and what were those? Yeah, I think this, for the first time you asked me this, you, Ricky dropped me an email and I just put, now you're asking. And I, <laughs> I couldn't actually figure out how, how we persuaded people because um, at a university particularly, um, uh, you know, everybody's completely intelligent uh, 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 and people are trained to think. Uh, are often quite perfectionist. And there's a number of themes that have come up today which I think um, we, we came across. And I, I had some completely surreal moments in board meetings um, describing uh, to a bunch of professors how to think like an intelligent five-year-old, um, a.k.a. the Google, Google web, web crawler, uh, you know, and, and, and how to structure uh, content. And we even got down to how do, you, how do you, what do you do when you want to pick a pair of curtains you Google? Right, first, uh, and actually because so many of these things didn't apply to higher education, that's just not how people make decisions about education, is it? So there's a lot of real you know, barriers to break through. Um, what I would say is I, I was kind of waiting for a burning platform. The, the university is extremely good with a burning platform. Uh, and uh, the one that presented itself uh, was international undergraduate students where uh, you know, actually the volumes are quite small. But the lifetime value of, of international undergraduates is, is very high because the fees are high and because once you're in, you're in for three years. Uh, and uh, so, so it's a, a burning platform with relatively uh, low risk. Um, I think uh, collaborating with people, I had a, 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 a great um, collaborator in the chief information officer and also the director of the international office. So we worked really together uh, to do a lot of lobbying behind the scenes, breaking down the problem into little bits. And then something that Luke was saying earlier, which I think is true, is persuading people that you have to start 
and that, you know, it's the minimum viable product thing. You've got to start and improve. And you can't start and get 10 out of 10 perfect. Um, and uh, I, I think that was the, the, the most important thing for us. Yeah, for sure. And I think it was the answer to um, one of Kirsty's questions earlier about if you've got any sort of change management happening, it's, it's picking an area of opportunity, perhaps a smaller area of opportunity, and getting started with it rather than trying to make huge wholesale change all at yeah. once. No, no, absolutely. And the other thing I found was that... Um, uh, uh, putting, uh, and Kirsty was talking about this earlier, is, is talking to people in a language that they understand, uh, you know, avoiding acronyms, none of which I personally understand, my team will know that, uh, but also avoiding acronyms which have particular meanings to people like CRM, uh, you know, and so on and so forth, and just talking about the benefits, really, rather than the, the functionality and the widgets themselves. No, for sure. Um, so I guess you touched on this earlier, but one of the kind of challenges from an outsider looking in is the wide range of comms channels you've got to control. So you, you've got to talk to students, you've got to talk to postgrads, you've got to talk to all of these B2B parts of the organization as well. How would you go about starting with that and how would you go about setting priorities and who to talk to and when to talk to. What's that communications challenge in a university look like? <laughs> well, it's massive. And, 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 and you know, we uh, broke just at the very, very beginning, uh, even for me to think about it, we broke our, um, uh, our, our audiences, if you like, into four what I call communications buckets that have similar communications needs. So the first, obviously, is the internal, uh, is, the, is the staff. And uh, there's six and a half thousand of them. They get out a lot all over the world to conferences. They're specialists in various things. And so, and, and so uh, w we have a particular communication strategy for them. Uh, then we have students and their influencers. That's typically now increasingly parents, teachers, internationally. There's a, a, a channel uh, set up, which is international agents. Uh, then we have uh, what we describe as the Newcastle community, and that would be like our first-line connections on LinkedIn, nearly. So it's people that do business with us. So they could be current students, they could be alumni or past students, they could be large corporations like Siemens that do business with us every day, or the city council. They're people that know us well. And then the last group of people is um, opinion leaders uh, uh, and influencers, so you can get everything, you know, from government ministers, journalists, all of that kind of thing. Uh, so that's how we, how we, ha that's where we start. No, I think that's a, a great piece of advice. Is uh, booked it down into manageable chunks based on their communication yeah, there's needs. Yeah, a theme here. Yeah, I, it, I, I have was. to, I have to, yeah, I have to it simplify everything. So. <laughs> yeah, no, and we we all should, I guess. If you start any problem with how we're going to talk to these thousands of stakeholders that are very different messaging and needs, the easiest way to start is to book it down into what makes them different. A bit like persona marketing, but for communications, makes yeah, a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously there's been a ton of work by you and, and obviously the Newcastle team, many of which are here, to, to make all this uh, come to, to life and reality. Um, what's been the benefit of going through this process over the last 18 months or so, and I guess has it, has it been worth worth the effort. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I, well I, what I would say is that the, the thing which, uh, you know, really attracted me personally to the university and honestly what gets me out of bed every morning is that the Newcastle University is, is world class at many things and world leading 
uh, really world-leading at quite a few things. And so it's a bit of a marketer's dream, really. Is you know, in so many jobs I've had, I've had to spend. I think I said to you, you know, I spent 15 months trying to find out whether there are any lemons in Sprite. And I can take it from me, there aren't any lemons in Sprite. But really, having to look for the story, you don't have to look for the story at Newcastle University. There are so many stories. And so I, I, I think uh, you know, all we have to do, it's quite simple, is tell the rights people the stories that they want to hear, because there are plenty of them. So the problem's almost the other way around. So it's really worthwhile. And I think it's worthwhile because people all around the university are beginning to really understand what marketing, marketing skills and marketing people have got to add to the incredibly important work um, that they that they do. And you know, so, there are some amazing stories. I, I discovered lately that there was no computer game in the whole wide world that didn't have a little bit of Newcastle code in it somewhere. That the, um, the switches on the New York Stock Exchange are run on Newcastle University code. And so the things, you know, we say the things we do here make a difference out there, and they really do. And, and what we're doing in marketing is just making sure that everybody knows. No, for sure. Like you say, I guess we've all worked in those jobs where you've got to find the stories or you've got <laughs> to, you feel like the value prop is something you're making uh, yeah. yourself, whereas you've got, like you say, no, no end to the limit of stories that you can tell. So it must yeah. be very rewarding for you and, and the wider team. Yeah, yeah. No, it's great. Brilliant. Well, thanks for that, Jude. It's been really That's good. Um, appreciate you taking the time to do that, for sure. Thank you. So coming on stage in a moment is Tom. Tom is the marketing controller from a company called Shoes for Crews. Uh, Shoes for Crews are a very different company to Newcastle University. They provide uh, non-slip footwear to the likes of Burger King and McDonald's, but they also sell direct, uh, direct to uh, waiters and wait, uh, waitresses and barmen um, across the globe via e-commerce. So I thought it'd be good to have a chat with Tom about that. I think what also makes this chat very interesting is uh, these guys have been doing inbound marketing for eight or nine years now. Uh, their retail division started um, when we started working together and talking at a couple of hundred uh, thousand pounds, and they've gone through this journey of using SEO and PPC, then becoming a content machine, and they've got probably one of the most successful blogs I've been involved in. So I thought it'd be a really good story to share how they've evolved and how their company's uh, evolved over time. So I'd like to welcome Tom from Shoestrick Cruise to stage. Hi, buddy. Thank you, Ricky. Yeah. So I guess I kind of mentioned that at the start. You'd never, shoe screws had never really put a lot of time, effort, money, resource into web or digital marketing back in those days. What what was the main driver? Why did someone at shoe screws wake up one morning and go, "We need to invest heavily into this area"? Um, well, for us, um, our B two B side, <coughs> excuse me, of the uh, business was where the success was at. Um, we had a B2C website, we had a retail offering, and um, that was just tipping along. We didn't invest too much time, too much money in it. But um, we knew as a business that it was, our, it was the channel that was uh, giving us the highest margin. So it made a lot of sense, because we had a lot of different price bands selling into different businesses. So it just made an awful lot of sense for us to push, um, push that more, that channel more. Um, and we just said to ourselves, right, we gotta take um, you know, a chance here and um, change the dynamic and try and push a lot more business through our, um, through our B2B retail website. So um, the concerns that we had certainly were 
one, um, jumping into using methodologies that, um, that we hadn't used before. Um, you know, as a marketer, you're familiar with them, but if you haven't used them, um, you tend to be a bit reticent. Um, so we kind of said, right, that was one issue. But the main issue um, that we had was return on investment. So it's a key thing that every marketer works to. Um, you know, I was in continuous, friendly um, debates with the, uh, my financial uh, controller um, about giving us money. Marketers are very easy, to sp very easy um, and uh, good at spending money. Uh, your financial team wants you to rein things in and not spend money. So um, I just uh, found that, look, you've, you've got to speculate um, and you've got to take chances. So very much um, it was about that, that ROI because we're target driven. You know, we got monthly targets, we got quarterly targets to meet. So as a business, we had to be sure that what we were going to step into would give us the returns that we were looking for. No, sure. I guess until you do things like this, you don't realise where habits form, but Shoes for Crews were actually Digital 22's first ever client when Digital 22 was just me uh, eight or nine years ago. And I guess those habits of talking about ROI <laughs> every month have stuck with the agency, and it's something that we've always had ingrained is, are we giving you your money back? How much are you getting back on your dollar? And I guess that's come from you guys in terms of being such focused on we need the ROI, we've got limits we want to hit, we've got targets we want to hit every year. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, we're um, our peering company is in the US. Um, the European operation has been run out of Shannon um, in the Midwest of Ireland. So um, we had to answer to um, our paymasters ultimately in, in the US. Um, so they were very um, ROI you know, driven, so therefore you know, it, it, it came across to us as well that we had to kind of push that way. But I guess the, one of the reasons um, and the comfort factor that we were given was because you know, ultimately talking to you guys, as you said, you know, we, were there, we were one of your first um, uh, companies. Um, you were hungry to, to um, you know, prove yourselves. We, I guess, from the, the, process, the processes that you spoke about, what you were going to do, um, the methodologies and so on, you know, that gave us, I guess, the, ultimately the, um, the comfort and the, the, the trust to go, right, let's just um, take that leap of faith and haven't looked back since, you know, we're here eight years later, so I think that's um, yeah. a good testament. We're still talking, Ricky. Yeah, no, we're still friends all these years later, which is always a good sign. Um, I guess someone took that leap of faith in us, and obviously, thankfully, they did, otherwise we wouldn't all be sat here today. But at what point did you know that the things I was talking about on slides and I've shown these methodologies and ways of working. At what point did we know we made the right decision doing this? When did the, I guess, the, the penny drop or when did it become like, yeah, this was the right yeah, way to go? It, it was, you know, it was pretty much straight away because um, for us, against, again, it was the, the results that we saw. So within um, the first year, our return on investment was 10 to 1. Um, you know, it was huge. We were kind of taken aback ourselves. Um, and it was, it's very tangible as well. Um, with, any, with a lot of the marketing that you do, um, a lot of it now is in real time. So you see whatever you put in, you get back out. Um, we were happy, financial controller, static, and, and suddenly there's more money being, being let out. Um, so that return on, on, on investment was, was key. Um, another one was the, um, within 12 months, just under 50%, about 46% of the website traffic that we were getting was driven by inbound. So that was, you know, again, the proof was in the pudding there. Um, in 2000, so we've been working with um, Digital 22 since about 2012. 
um, about 2016, we started doing um, uh, content. And um, a year later, um, or actually it was about two years later, by 2018, um, that content had driven, you know, the, the, the actual blog content itself had dri driven over a million views. Um, so it's, it's these type of, um, I guess, milestones as such that, that kind of hammered home, you know, why they were doing, um, why things were going well um, and, and why we were happy. Yeah, I think that was quite a big moment for us because up until 2016, we'd used um, predominantly SEO and PPC as a tactics yeah. to grow, which um, I guess a more medium term, the kind of, especially with PPC short term, you can put your money in, get your money back out. And it was in 2016 when you guys, uh, we said, let's start blogging. I can't imagine what was going through your head when we said, let's start blogging and doing content marketing. But kind of holding your nerve with that. And like you say, there's more than 2 million a year readers on that blog now. Um, I guess that was a big moment for us that we could see that we could start investing in medium long-term um, strategies together, not just put a pound in AdWords, get four pounds back out of AdWords, whatever it is. Start investing in the long-term stuff. I think that yeah, was a big yeah, moment. It, it, it was. The, the, I guess the investment on, on our part was easier the more successful we became. And as I said, our results were tangible. Um, you know, our, our website revenue was growing 2018. You know, I think 2012, we started off um, on our retail side, it was about 400 grand a year. Um, by 2018, we hit the million mark. Um, so that was in no small part down to um, the, the, our inbound strategies that we were doing. So as we became more successful, we were happy to, to I guess, trust you guys more. And, you know, we had built up, um, you know, a really good relationship, you know, with that. And, and so it was, you know, it just became easier. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think that's... One of the things that's worked well and I quite admire about you guys as a company is when we work with a lot of people or when I speak to a lot of marketers, you get really comfortable in doing what they've always done. So every year they'll do the same marketing things because they did it last year. They'll take the same marketing budget because it was the same budget that was last year, but they obviously give us much bigger targets to hit with those budgets. Um, one thing I think you guys have done well, and, and not just with inbound, but with all the marketing you do, is every year you'll experiment something new. You'll add something on, you'll add a few things on, you'll add a software on or a, market, uh, or a channel on, and obviously put some money behind it. What's give, I guess, the company as an overall the confidence in you guys as a team to keep trying new things? How are you managing to get more budget every year? Because I guess everyone here has that challenge of wanting more budget every year. How have you managed to do that year on year on year, get more and more and more spend on marketing? Um, it's, it's, it's very much down to um, the retail channel growing. Um, it's our, as I said, it's, it's, our, well, it's our fastest growing channel within the business. We're, we're hitting about 20 to 25% growth year on year. Um, and that retail is being driven by inbound. Um, the ROI um, as well, it's stayed above 10, you know, 10 to 1 pretty much year in year. Um, there's a couple of years we experienced about 13 to 1. Um, and this is taken as, a, as an average of everything that, that, um, that you guys are doing for us. So when we're seeing those type of results, um, it, you know, it's a little bit easier. As you said, by the end of last year, so 2018, we had about a million views on our blogs. End of last year, it was, went up to 2 million. So... Um, the, the thing with content is it's, it's not immediate. You know, you're, when we started in 2016, and, and this was, I guess, another kind of a milestone for us, um, you know, when we started with both content and email, um, you were telling us, look, it's not as immediate as, say, PPC and SEO is. You know, you've got to 
you know, it could take anywhere between six and nine months before you even see anyone clicking on a blog. But then once it does happen, it, you know, the floodgates start opening because you're, you're constantly writing um, blogs over a, you know, every single month. <coughs> so it's an accumulative effect. And that's what, what was happening with us. And um, interestingly, one of the blogs that you guys wrote back in 2016, um, it was about waitresses. Um, it was key interview questions for waitresses. Um, that's still our top performing blog now, four years later. So that's delivering the most traffic to our website of any blog. So it's proof in the pudding of, of how content is, is working. And then as a result of that, strategically, because we work in, in various channels, you know, we talk to you know, quick service restaurants are, are a big part of our business, um, bartenders, uh, waiters, waitresses, um, hospitality, so the whole um, hotels, front of house, back of house. So as a result, a lot of our blogs, well, straight away we kind of changed and we did interview questions for all our personas. Um, and also key to, to uh, some of the work that we did with you guys was creating different personas as well. And I think Paul alluded to, uh, to it earlier um, that, you know, going after key personas, you're, you're giving content out to, you know, what people want to hear. You're being relevant. And so for us, we've just tried to, to be relevant to our target audience as much as we can. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting um, tip there in the middle of that is that blog post, if you looked at it, if you did standard keyword research and, and looked at the keywords for that, there's actually pretty much no volume in, in that blog topic. Like, there's, there's no keywords that say um, waitress interview questions. It's probably like 100 a month, but there's 15,000 a month people click it and read it. And it's one of those that if you know your persona well enough and you can um, demonstrate the, the kind of capability to know your person well enough and back yourself to write the things that you know they're looking for, even if the keyword research doesn't prove it, it's well worth doing. And it kind of changed a little bit of our philosophy. We were very keyword driven uh, two, three, four years ago. We still are, but we have this kind of allowance for, look, we just know our personas want to read this. I don't care what the keywords say. Um, and that's one of those that came from that. And like you say, it's probably one of the better performing blog blogs we've done for you guys. Yeah, it is. And you know, it's, it's great. And, and you know, that's what we want to do. We want to find um, ultimately those sweet spots and, and, and keep trying to push those, those bits of content out. Brilliant. Well, that's it, Tom. Cheers for that, mate. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Cheers. Oh. Cheers, Tom. So the last person I'd like to invite up in the moment is Claire. Claire's a marketing manager from a company called Wi-Fi Spark. Woo, yeah. Um, uh, so very much a B2B company. Wi-Fi Spark provide enterprise-grade Wi-Fi solutions to like of NHS, Newcastle Airport, and Arriva, uh, Wi-Fi Spark themselves have grown very quickly over the years through a lot of traditional marketing, PR, and events. And just over two years or so ago, we started to work together because these guys wanted to up their digital game. So I'd like to bring Claire to stage to have a chat about that. <laughs> Claire, you've got a fan base going in the audience. I like it. Um, <clears throat> so thanks for doing this again. Um, so like I say, you're already a very active marketing team, doing a lot of uh, PR and events and traditional marketing. What was the pull to start looking more into digital, to do inbound, to buy things like HubSpot? What was the driver for that? Um, I think it's really interesting because compared to some of the previous speakers, I think we're on a different, um, we're at the other end of the scale. But, um, we've got two in our marketing department at Wi-Fi Spark. That's me and Becky. Um, and we kind of, um, we do it all. 
Um, and we sort of, as of two years ago, we were doing it in a very um, manual way. Our email kind, um, campaigns kind of consisted of the like the spray and pray technique. Um, it was very broadcast. And we have really strong growth ambitions, and we knew we needed a new channel that was going to help us to um, accelerate our growth. And also, we wanted people to be coming to us. So Inbound was um, a solution that was going to be really measurable, which we really appreciate, and also was going to be scalable as well. No, for sure. Um, definitely the measurability part of it, what probably brought me to digital marketing back in the, the first days, I remember being... Um, harassed as a marketing manager to do a lot of channels, maybe radio or whatever it was, and I was like, how do you know if anyone's listened to it? They're like, oh, we got this book and we average it and we'll tell you this number. When I got into digital, I was like, I know that's happened, that person's done it, so I definitely resonate with that. Um, so the website, as we know, is the sort of core to inbound marketing. It's the thing we're pulling people towards. Um, I think it's fallen quite luckily in good time and that uh, Luke's done his talk on uh, growth-driven design because the question I was going to ask is, you chose to, to actually do go that route. You used the methodology that Lou created. Why did you choose to do that versus just doing another traditional web design? Um, well, I have been in marketing for long enough that I've done a few um, website sort of designs and builds in my time. And 100%, they've been a stressful, over-budget, difficult process. Um, and when I joined Wi-Fi Spark, we knew that we wanted a new website. We knew it... We, we, once we'd met you, we knew we wanted it to be on HubSpot. Um, and then when Ricky, when you just uh, described the, um, the GDUD process, it was honestly like a revelation because I've never had a, a website project that works where you, you launch it and everyone's happy. The, you know, a, a, a month later, someone will say, oh, have you spotted that typo on that page? <laughs> yeah. Or, oh, did you not think that we need to launch this new product? And, and then it's going to cost more money, and the business doesn't realize it's going to cost more money. And it's just, a, it's just a painful, painful process. So with GDD, the idea that you iterate, and you continually learn, and you measure, and you make improvements, that has been a complete revelation, and no. we love it. <laughs> no, I'm glad you managed to sell it in, because obviously to to directors and, um, and people like that. It's quite, hard. it's quite a hard thing to explain, and I, I sell GDD all day, every day, but this sort of idea of we're gonna keep investing in it, it's a machine, we need to oil it, we need to tweak it, we need to continue to improve it over time. Um, that's definitely a hard selling, so it was good that you managed to do that. Yeah. I think, I don't wanna paint a picture that inbound marketing's all rainbows and sunshine and stuff, because it's not, it's hard work as well. What's been some of the sort of challenges you faced turning the business from a, a traditional, uh, marketing function to layering on top of this as well? What's some of the things people should be prepared for if they're going to go down the same route? I think um, something that we have learned, because um, we were so excited about the idea of getting lots of new content, and we were sold on content marketing and having you know great new blogs, and um, what really took us ba aback was the sheer volume of, of the stuff that was coming at us from, from the team. Um, and we very quickly had to put a process in place to manage the content and to ensure that we had the right um, approvals process from our side to make sure we could, we could handle it. Um, and when we first started with Digital 22, our CEO, because we're not a huge company, our CEO wanted to see everything. And he wanted to be on the approvals for everything. And I think he lasted like three weeks. Yeah, that doesn't work. <laughs> <No. laughs> um, but it quite quickly, you know, we were able to give him the, tr you know, he was able to trust that the content was ace and that me and Becky sort of had it under control and that we would make 
sure that the process of approving the content was thorough and, and um, you know, fit the brand. So, but I think just being aware that there's going to be a huge influx of this great stuff that you're going to have to manage um, is, is one of the top tips I'd give. No, I think, I think that is an amazing tip because probably the number one challenge we have as an agency working with clients is approval process for content. Everyone wants their say on it. Content's extremely subjective, no matter who's looking at it. So I think managing to identify that early on, change your process, get that work in for the betterment of us both because that needs to go out for you to get results. Uh, there's a lot of companies where we do this and things get held up between five, six, seven people want to see it, ultimately a CEO. And then they're chasing you for results and you're like, it's still sat in drafting Google Docs. Like You get no results off that until it's live. So I think that's a good tip. Be prepared for that. Have it in your head how you want it to work um, and change the process if it doesn't so you can get stuff out of the door. Um, the other bit is obviously you've, you've said you, you guys are a two-man team. You manage uh, traditional marketing, inbound GDD. You're doing video. You do your website. Like There's a lot going on. How have you managed to bring all that together and what's been some of the benefits of doing these things simultaneously? Um, I think, well, Bex and I, we, we like our plans and our lists. So we, we make sure that we've got our calendar worked out. We have different focus periods um, at different times of the year for different products and sectors that we, we need to target. And then we make sure that everything aligns so that all of the different channels are supporting each other. So digital. Um, probably people around the room would probably agree that there's not going to be one channel that's going to make or break your success. It all is cumulative. And that's certainly been the case for us. We've sort of layered on the different channels and we just make sure that the sort of the content and the, um, the approach that we take in each month is consistent across the channels to make to, for the best impact. I'm sure you can tell when you've got this right when we're creating stuff and you're using them across the business, not just for what the intended purpose was. Um, I don't know if you can share a couple of examples of how you've used things like content and stuff in yeah. the wider business. Um, something that, that the team, the Digital 22 team did for us actually was some really good animated videos. Um, the Wi-Fi that we create, the, the Wi-Fi that we sell, um, it can be a little technical and it can be, um, depending on the sector that we're selling to, um, the product is, is, there's changes and there's different iterations of it. So the team at Digital 22 created these great little explainer videos, animated ones, um, and we've used that across the business. So the sales team used them in their sales presentations. Um, that all everybody in the business has their email signature and has the video on their email signature, so um, it's it's visible and being used um, a lot. And also, when we go to trade shows and exhibitions, we have a big screen and we're using the videos there as well. So we're trying to make sure that all the content that is being created, um, we're using in as many different places as we can. No, for sure. We can, we can always tell we're onto a winner when sales teams start using it. Yeah. So when they're including it within their conversations with their clients, when they're sharing things on LinkedIn, we know we've got company buy-in, not, yeah. just, not just marketing buy-in, which is really important. And I, and I guess to wrap this up, so. We've talked a lot with everyone around how this has impacted their business. How about you personally? What have been some of the, the things you've learned or things you do new now than kind of a couple of years ago? I think um, personally, as I said, as I've said several times, there's a team of two and um, it can feel a little bit like we've got an awful lot to do. Um, and the one of the, the best things about working with an agency like yourselves is that we feel like we've got this army of experts behind us. So actually, we're not just a team of two because we've got the whole Digital 22 team of experts that are supporting us and um, 
working even when, you know, late at night, we know that, you know, <laughs> even when we're not able to be working on a certain part of the project, they're, they're keeping it going. So I'd say sort of um, that feeling of support um, has, been, has been really beneficial. Um, and there is one story I wanted to tell, actually, that um, one of the sectors that we work in is sort of public sector and healthcare, and there's a procurement um, site called G-Cloud. And we, um, and that's where sort of public sector organizations go to, to, to buy their IT services. And we are on G Cloud. So there was a webinar talking about um, best practice for marketing to the public sector. And I thought, okay, I'll go along to that. I need to know what best practice is. And so they're going through and they're saying like, this is, this is a good example and this is, this is what people, and don't do this. And then at the, at the end they're like, and we just wanted to pull together one final really good example. And they flash it up on screen and I went, and then I'm screen grabbing because they used our blog as oh, an example awesome. of best practice. And I was like, wow, well, you know, yeah. <laughs> if, um, if, you know, the, this, this company is choosing us as, a, as an example of best practice and I'm on here to try and learn, I think we've got a pretty good team in place. So yeah, sure. I didn't know where that us. story was going there. You had me worried. You go there? <laughs> I've, I've got a story to share. You never know where that's going. Um, so that's brilliant. So, yeah, thank you for that, Claire. Thanks for your time in doing that. I hope everyone got some insight into how other people in similar roles are, are looking at inbound, are looking at these technologies and things. And these, will, these three people will all be around after the event. If you want to chat to them, ask any specific questions, uh, feel free. I'm sure they won't mind having a chat with you. Thank you, Claire. Cheers. Cheers, Claire. Thank you.